So if you'll turn there with me, but while you're going there, you know, if you think about it, our culture is really built on stories. We get together around food. We get together when it's warm enough around the fire. And what do we instinctively do? We start telling stories, right? I mean, we value good stories. We want that. We want that guy. We want that gal to show up who's just a great storyteller, right? And, and we also devalue poor stories, right? Because you tell a story and it doesn't go over very well. And then you say something like, then I found $5. At least that's what I do. But everyone's got a story. And everyone has a story that's continually being written. But the question this morning is, do you have a God story? A God story is, is just like Heather shared. It's a story of how God intersected and interrupted your life. And made your story his story. So if good storytelling is that important and it's that effective, how do I share my God story? Let's learn from Paul. We're picking up where Joey left off last week in chapter 21, verse 37. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, May I say something to you? And he said, Do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And uh, And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, Brothers and fathers, Hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they had heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. So this first part here, we see that Paul respectfully relates with them. And that's the first part of sharing your story. You got to know your audience and respectfully relate to them. He's really respectful. So if you recall, just before this, Paul is actually beaten and treated like dirt by these people. Yet, he's respectful to to them. Now, I have a hard time not being crabby towards people who are innocent when I'm sick, right? That may or may not have happened this week, today even, right? Being just a little on edge. Now, Paul is is not only is he not crabby, but he's respectful and he relates to people who treated him really poorly. And he asked permission in verse 37. Hey, can I speak to you? So these authorities that are, are after him, he's like, hey, can I, can I have permission to even speak to you? And he's not defensive, but he is direct. He could have said, what? You guys think I'm this loser, this Egyptian guy who stirred up something or other? Are you kidding me? Or he could have just shut up. He should, could have just said, well, I guess I'll just be quiet. But instead, he's direct, yet he's respectful. And in verse 39, he asks permission. Okay, now, can I speak to the people? And he gives him permission. And Paul right away says to these people, and this is a crowd of Jews, he says to them, brothers and fathers. That shows immense respect in a culture where family meant everything. He could have just said, brothers But instead, he shows respect to those who are older and says brothers and fathers and to the leaders. 
He could have said, you know what? You're not following Jesus, so you're not my brothers and my fathers. But instead, he recognizes his heritage and shows respect to them and honor to them. And then he's relatable. Notice the language. It says here twice. He uses, he uses Hebrew, which was the most common language of the Jews in Jerusalem at that time. He also uses Greek when he's talking to the Roman leaders. He switches languages almost instantly. Why? Also, he could be relatable. So first, we need to know our audience. Be respectfully relatable. But then we move on. Let's keep reading chapter 22, verse 3. Paul says, I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers. Being zealous for God, as all of you are this day, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those who also were, were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. So this section is before Jesus. And I have in your notes this morning kind of an outline of how to share your God story. And this is the first section. It says, what my life was like before I met Jesus. So here, Paul's before Jesus life is actually just like their life. He's speaking to Jews, and this, is, this was his heritage. This is what life was like for him growing up. And so he gives details that only Jews in Jerusalem would be able to relate to. He says, I was brought up in this city. I was educated by Gamaliel. He's like, you guys know this guy. He's the specific known Jewish teacher. He said he, he had strict training in the law and he was zealous for God. Which means he, he had a strict obedience to the law of Moses. And he even says, he even goes this far and says, as all of you are this day. Okay, he's relating to them. He said he persecuted the way. The way was the term just for Christians then. And he goes into detail. He says, here's what my life was like. I put Christians to death. I bound them. I put them in prison. I put both men and women, no distinction, anybody, everybody. I threw them in prison and I punished them. You want proof? He says, go ask the high priests and the elders. And then he unapologetically just shares the facts. He says, I found hope, I found life, I found security in this and in this. And for Paul, it was, he found hope, life, and security in his identity in being Jewish and being a persecutor of Christians. This is who I was. He doesn't condemn who he was, at least not yet. He just says it like it was. This is what life was like for me. See, this is what we have to do in this section. We have to shoot for the most commonality that we can. You know, for, for me, when I share my story with people, if I'm sharing with people with very little church or religious experience, my story is going to center around how I was finding satisfaction and hope and life in tennis instead of Jesus. But if I'm talking to someone who's grown up in the church, who's more religious, I'm going to talk about how uh, I was really frustrated with myself because I was, I was being a good kid and, and doing all the right things, but still just not, not really fulfilled. 
and wasn't actually turning to Jesus. I was just acting like it. Now, those two things were going on simultaneously in my life. So I'm not lying to say one in one context or one in the other. It's just we have different layers of what's going on in our lives and in our stories that we can share with different people to create more commonality. So I want you to think through what was life like for you before you met Jesus? I want you to take some time today. Start jotting down bullets of what that could be. You have my permission to tune me out at this point and start jotting those things down if you want. Next part is encountering Jesus. Verse 6. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus. And there you will be told what all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. So Jesus shows up unexpectedly in Paul's life. I mean, literally, while he was on the way to persecute followers of Jesus, Jesus shows up and speaks to him dramatically. He never saw this coming. And so for us, maybe this came through a Bible verse or, or a friend like Heather just shared with us or, or a speaker or a song or an experience but a time where Jesus clearly shows up and encounters you and jolts you and marks you. Sometimes it's dramatic. But sometimes it's more subtle. Sometimes there's more subtle nudges where Jesus shows up. It's not always like Paul's experience here where it's just boom. Sometimes it's just through little things. But what happens every time that Jesus encounters someone is that he reveals their need for him. For Paul, he says to him, hey, you're persecuting me. He shines a literal light on Paul, but he also shines a figurative light and goes, hey, look, you're living in sin. You're persecuting me. And so for us, when Jesus encounter us, encounters us, he makes it clear that we're in need of a savior. And maybe it's specific. Maybe it's like this specific sin struggle. Or a misplaced hope. Or a, or a misplaced love. But it becomes clear that the current path. That we're on. And is need of mending and correcting. When Jesus encounters us. If it's actually Jesus. It will always include a realization. Of your sin. And of your brokenness. And if not. That's not Jesus. That's actually just self-help crap cloaked in Jesus. You don't need a savior from sin if you don't know you're sinful. You don't need better versions of yourself to be more or to be less anxious or more joyful or more confident. All those things are nice. What you actually need though is a brand new self. You need a brand new identity to be a child of God. And then he'll help us with those things, become less anxious and more joyful. But the goal isn't actually those things. 
The goal is to realize, oh, wow, I can't do this on my own. I'll never be. Uh, I, I'll always struggle with anxiety if I don't have Jesus. I'll, I'll never be joyful if I don't have Jesus because I'm a messed up person. So when you encounter Jesus, it marks you. And for Paul, this literally meant he was blind. But for us, we're never quite the same. It sticks with you. And again, maybe it's not a moment, right? Maybe it's a series of events or conversations or circumstances. But the fact is always that it moves you in a way that you can't forget and you just can't shake. Maybe this is some of you today. Maybe Jesus has encountered you and you've realized that you're messed up and you need him, but you've simply done nothing with it. But you just can't shake it. And that's why you're here this morning. Like he's been pursuing you as Heather shared with us earlier. And and you can't shake it, but you've just kind of stiff-armed him. This next section is how I realized I needed Jesus. When did that happen? How did that happen? After that is committing to Jesus. When did you commit your life to Jesus? Verse 12. And one, Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. So this is Paul committing his life to Jesus. Verse 12, he continues to relate, right? Because he he points out, hey, this guy, Ananias, who was a devout Jew. He knew the law well. This is the guy who led me to Jesus. Verse 16, a great question is given to Paul by Ananias. The question is, why do you wait? Why do you wait? He realized that he needed Jesus. He realized his calling on his life. And now Ananias is like, why, why are you waiting around? Why wait any longer? And in verse 16, we have two commands. And the English Standard Version, I think, does a poor job of relating these, these commands of what they were in the original language. But they're, they're this. Call on Jesus to have your sins washed away and forgiven. And two, get baptized to show everyone that you're committed to Jesus. New Living Translation gets it more right. They say, what are you waiting for? Get up and be baptized. Have your sins washed away by calling on the name of the Lord. When did you call on the name of Jesus to have your sins forgiven and washed away? That's this part of your story. When did that happen? When did you repent, turn away from your sin and turn to the Savior? When did you believe that Jesus is God and died in your place and rose from the dead? When did you commit to following Jesus for the rest of your life? Maybe it wasn't a moment. But but when did you look back and go, oh, wow, yeah, I'm his and he is mine. Right? Maybe you don't know exactly when that happened. But I think it's important on days when you're doubting and when you're afraid and when you're suffering and when you're lied to by the devil to have a day and a time to look back at and go, yes, 
this is the day I decided to follow Jesus. Or at least this is the day that I realized that I'm following Jesus. Because there will be days where you just, where you, you start to doubt because of our sin-stained world or because of, uh, of different things you're hearing in your mind. And you need to have something to remember that, yes, I am his. Nothing can separate me from him. I've committed to him and he's committed to me. You can have assurance even in your darkest days. Maybe this hasn't happened for you. And I just ask you what Ananias asked Paul. What are you waiting for? The second command to Paul was this. Go get baptized to show everyone that you're committed to Jesus. In Acts 8, we see an Ethiopian. And we see over, over, and over in Acts and throughout the New Testament, people believe and then they're immediately baptized. It's a physical step that doesn't save you. The water doesn't, isn't magical. It doesn't save you. But it's a pattern that we see in the New Testament. And it's actually really cool. If you haven't gotten baptized, you're, you're actually really missing out. And just to, be, just to be straight up with you, you're, you're ignoring the Bible and God if you haven't taken that step. So if you haven't, what are you waiting for? The Sunday after Easter, April 28th, we're going to do some baptisms. Talk to me. Let's do it. What are you waiting for? Next section of your story, the difference Jesus has made in your life. So we see this with Paul, verse 17. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly. Because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. So Jesus starts to change Paul's life. And the first major thing is just communication with God. You know, some of the vitals of following Jesus, just like we have physical vitals, like your heartbeat. Some of the vitals are praying and reading the Bible. So we see verse 17, he's praying. In verse 18, he fell into a trance and he had dialogue with God. Paul's now moved from, a, from just rule following, because that's what he was doing as a Jew. He was just following the rules, do X, Y, Z. Now he has a relationship with God. There's a conversation going on. And so for us, that means praying. And then reading our Bibles. And then, and then listening to the Holy Spirit's promptings. And here... Paul is, is speaking directly to Jesus. And, and Jesus certainly can do that and does that at points and gives us dreams and visions and such. But we have the sure voice of God all the time right here in the Bible. So part of our story is just doing the, every ordinary, the, the everyday ordinary task and not just task, but relationship of talking with God and hearing from God. Jesus changes Paul by changing his trajectory. Paul's now sent on a mission and he's sent far from home. And for us, we're also sent on mission to be witnesses and to make disciples wherever we go. Plus, he's given us unique gifts and talents to love God and love other people. We also see 
that for Paul, sin starts to decrease. And it starts to decrease because he's now more focused on God's mission. He's no longer persecuting Christians. He's doing the opposite. And so for us, now that we're focused on God, now that you're focused on his mission, not your own mission, we should start to sin less and less. We don't become sinless, but we sin less and less because we're doing the opposite. We're, we're going on mission. It's hard when you're, when you're focused on living for mission, on mission for God to get caught in sin. Now, even early in my Christian life, I used to just be a hothead and absolutely freak out at stupid things. Now, I can't sit here and tell you that that's completely gone. But now, even recently, some of my best friends have told me that they have a hard time believing that. I don't say that to boast. I just say that as, hey, you know what? As you get to know Jesus and you're in communication with him and you're walking with him, he starts to change you from the inside out. And you know, there are people that need to hear that part of your story just as much as the part of your story of when you encounter Jesus for the first time. You're always having more chapters written in your story. Use those, share those with people. People need to be encouraged. People need to be need to be challenged by those things in your life. So as God writes that in your story in the next week, in the next month, in the next year, changing you to become more like him, share those experiences, share those things with others to give them hope. Yeah, you actually can be less anxious. You actually can become less of a hothead. Jesus actually does change people. And my life is an example of it. So what difference has Jesus made in your life? Think about that today. The last part is leaving the results to God. Verse 22. Up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust in the air, The tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, seeing that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said, What are you about about to do for this man is a Roman citizen? So the tribune came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, yes. The tribune answered, I, brought, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, but I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. We're going to see in coming chapters a lot more about Paul's Roman citizenship and all that. But I want to remind you of a definition of successful witnessing that I gave a few weeks ago. It's this. It's taking the initiative to share your God's story and the power of the Holy Spirit and then leaving the results to God. Taking the initiative to share your God's story in the power of the Holy Spirit and leaving the results to God.
Notice there are two very different reactions here. Paul didn't even get to finish his speech. He said the word Gentiles in verse 21. And it says at that word, they listened to him and then they just freaked out. Okay. I mean, they, they started throwing dust in the air. It's like LeBron James before a basketball game going on. Um, just, I mean, just freaking out. Just crazy. Like, kill him. This is, this is just insane stuff going on here. But the Romans who are in charge are now very curious. And chapter 23, they ask him more about this. Two very different reactions and two very different results. Here's the thing. When we're sharing our God story, you don't control the results. God does. So take initiative to share your God story. Depend on the power of the Holy Spirit, but then leave the results to God. You know, people could hate you for sharing your story with them. People would go, that was nice, and move on. Or they could thank you and want to hear more about Jesus and everything in between. But the results are not your concern. That's God's concern. You just share your God story and leave the results to him. So here's my challenge. I want you to take that sheet of paper or some other sheet of paper this week and write out your God story. Maybe you could do this this afternoon as a family together. Maybe you could do it in connection group. But write it out. And then I want you to memorize it. And I want you to have a two-minute version on hand to share with someone this week. And here's why. Think about it. There are people in your life right now who don't know your God story that you could easily share it with. Especially if you had a two-minute version. I I propose a two-minute version because when you're in regular natural conversation with people, you usually don't speak for two minutes at a time. Or at least if you do you're probably talking too much. And that should probably get pared down a little bit. But there are opportunities. Maybe you're with a coworker, you're driving to lunch. Hey, can I share my story with you? They can say no. And that's fine because we're leaving the results to God. But they might say yes and you get to share it with them. There are people in your life. There are situations that you're in right now where you could share your God story in a pretty unthreatening way. Because like I said, our culture loves stories. So write it down, memorize it, and share it this week. You know, the number one fear people have in witnessing and telling other people about Jesus is that they don't know what to say. Well, guess what? Now you do. I just prepared you to know what to say. Share your God story. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would help us to take opportunities And to even make opportunities to ask people if we can share our story with them this week, God. I know it's difficult. I know there's a lot of fear there. But I pray that you would give us strength by your Holy Spirit to step out and share our story with other people. Thank you for our stories, God. I pray for all of us in this room, wherever we're at on that spectrum with our story. That you would just continue to write chapters. I pray for those in here that maybe don't have a God story, that you would interrupt their lives and show, show them that they desperately need you, God. And I pray for us who do, that we would have this written down to look back on in the days that are difficult to cling to for assurance 
and to also use to help welcome other people into the kingdom, to share it with other people. Thank you that the results are up to you, God. Pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.